Welcome to Credo. With me, Father Andrew Eburn, to the podcast journeying through the various articles of the Creed, the fundamental statement of our Catholic faith. So this is the article of the Creed that we're going to look at this week. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Jesus and the Second Coming. So I just want to ask, what are the really simple things that we can say about the second coming? Well, the first simple thing is this. It will happen. Jesus will definitely come again. Jesus tells us himself. He tells his disciples, for the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay every man for what he has done. He tells the chief priests, At his trial you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Uh, Then the angels at the ascension tell the disciples, This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And Jesus even tells us what's going to happen on that day. As he says to his disciples shortly before his arrest and crucifixion, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. The great sheep and goats discourse, which we'll talk about a bit later. So it's definitely going to happen. The question is when and how do we prepare? There's a saying or piece of advice often given to priests about the celebration of Mass to keep their minds concentrated, and the advice is this. Celebrate this Mass as if it were your first Mass, your last Mass, and your only Mass. That's a saying I very often remind myself of, and it's a useful one to concentrate the mind when you're about to leave the sacristy. Celebrate this Mass as if it were your last. Now, the Church in a way, treats all existence as if it were the last day, as if the last judgment were imminent. Because for the Church, looking at the great spread of earthly history, we are now in what we call the last hour. And this is the teaching of the Church. The Catechism says, Since the Ascension, God's plan has entered into its fulfillment. We are already at the last hour. Already the final age of the world is with us. And again, there is scriptural authority for this teaching. St. John, in his first letter, says, Children, it is the last hour. The world passes away. Then St. Peter, in one of his letters, says, The end of all things is at hand. St. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, says, The end of the ages has come. So the church teaches... Ah, that the coming of Christ, uh, the first coming of Christ, we should say, and in particular his ascension into heaven, has now inaugurated the end of the ages, the last hour. So we could say the last chapter of salvation history has begun. It's almost as if all the main action in the plot of a novel has taken place, and now we're in the epilogue. Now, of course, it might seem rather a long epilogue to us, but that's because we're right inside it, and our perspective is necessarily limited. So if we think about the plot of that novel, if, as I say, salvation history is a novel with a plot, then it's perhaps useful to remind ourselves that the main action is all now over and done with. If, for example, we think about 
salvation history as the history of God revealing himself to man, the history of Revelation, from Genesis to the prophets, all the way down to Jesus in the incarnation, well, the revelation of God to man is fundamentally complete. And as the church is careful to teach, we do not expect any further revelation. The job of revelation is complete. What happens following the incarnation, the passion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that the church then spends the next 21 centuries or so unfolding that revelation, unpacking and preaching the good news to all people. If you think 21 centuries or so is a long time, well, the unfolding of revelation is not always straightforward or speedy. It took the church the best part of four centuries, for example, to come up with an appropriate formula for the doctrine of the Trinity. The Trinity, which, remember, is revealed in the baptism of Christ, so right at the start of his ministry, but it takes, as I say, a good four centuries for the church to get her head around it as a matter of doctrine, and people still misunderstand it down to this day. I always say that when it came to defining the doctrine of the Trinity, the wonder is we did it so quickly. Four centuries seems like breakneck speed to me. So as I say, in the wider context, the unfolding of Revelation is not always straightforward or necessarily speedy. Of course, every novel does come to an end, however drawn out the epilogue may be. In our case, we know it will happen, but we do not know when it will be. So this is perhaps the next simple thing to say about the second coming. We do not know when the second coming will be. And again, let's go back to scripture for a moment. Jesus, for example, prophesies the fall of Jerusalem, which was an apocalyptic event for his listeners. But he did not give a specific time frame for the prophecy. He says, but of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Jesus refusing to give specific times and dates. And again, when the disciples at the Ascension asked Jesus when the restoration of the kingdom will take place, Jesus tells them similarly, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has fixed. Now, this hasn't stopped a great many people predicting what will happen, and not just crackpots, but some quite mainstream Protestant ministers. Uh, for example, John Wesley, founder of the Methodist Church, who thought that the Second Coming would take place in 1836. Clearly didn't happen. Uh, then we have um, the Jehovah's Witnesses, who, uh, gosh, have got lots of formalism. I mean, they variously predicted that the Second Coming, or the Rapture, or an event like it, would take place in 1874, uh, then in 1918, then in 1925, then in 1976, and so on, and so on. But the Church, the Catholic Church, following the example of Christ, very wisely refuses to put any date and time on this. What we do know about the second coming is the broad outlines of what will happen because Jesus, as I mentioned earlier, gives us that sheep and goat discourse. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep at his right hand, but the goats at the left. The day of judgment. 
described in uh, Matthew chapter 25. And actually now Jesus gives us a lot of helpful detail here. If this was an exam, he gives us a really clear marks scheme. He tells us exactly what will give us good marks and what will not. This is what he says, and I'm going to read the whole thing out just to remind ourselves how clear, in a way, it all is. This is uh, Matthew chapter 25, verses 34 onwards, if you want to check it yourself. So Jesus said, Come, O blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see thee hungry and feed thee, or thirsty and give thee drink? And when did we see thee a stranger and welcome thee, or naked and clothe thee? And when did we see thee sick or in prison and visit thee? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when did we see thee hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to thee? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, as I say, if this was an exam, the marks scheme is pretty clear. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. These are what we call the corporal works of mercy. Feeding the hungry, giving water to the thirsty, clothing the naked, sheltering the homeless, visiting the sick, visiting the imprisoned. And then finally, uh, we can add the last of the corporal works of mercy, burying the dead, which comes not from the sheep and goats discourse, but from the book of Tobit, where one of Tobit's charitable deeds, which earned him the favour of God, is burying the dead. And now then, that's all we've got to do. That's all we have to ask ourselves. Did we feed the hungry? Did we give water to the thirsty? Did we clothe the naked? Did we shelter the homeless, visit the sick, visit the imprisoned? And so it seems to me, in terms of our response to all this, we can either focus on the negatives or on the positives. We can, that is, be overcome by fear and trepidation at the finality of judgment, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire. And it is fearful, let's not mince words about it, it is a fearful prospect, and we will at some point in this podcast consider hell and damnation, 
but not today, because ironically you might say we haven't got enough time. But we can, as I say, either focus on the negative, or we can focus on the positive and how clear and simple and straightforward is the formula Christ has given us to escape this catastrophe. How straightforward is the ladder that he has fashioned for us to climb to heaven? After all, we just have to do what he suggests, the seven corporal works of mercy. And so we just have to focus our gaze on those particular requests, but also, and here's another positive, focus our gaze on the person who suggests them to us, the person of Jesus Christ. Pope Benedict once gave a brilliant analysis of the Day of Judgment in which he suggests a really useful question. And the question is this, what does the Day of Judgment have in common with this day, today? If you think about the Day of Judgment, it can be this terrible apocalyptic vision with angels and hellfire and the damned, this fantastic otherworldly melodrama in a way. But however strange and dramatic and fantastic the Day of Judgment might seem to me, there are two things that are exactly the same on the Day of Judgment and today. There is a continuity. Two things that these very different days, the Day of Judgment and today, have in common, or to be even more specific, two people that are present on both days. And those two people are me and Jesus Christ. This is the continuity. These are the things that are present and the same on both days. So if I'm at all concerned about the Day of Judgment, and I should be, I just need to keep that continuity in mind and pay attention, therefore, to my relationship with Jesus Christ because he and I are both going to be there on the Day of Judgment, and if my relationship with him is good today, on this day, it will also be fine on the Day of Judgment. So by way of conclusion, what can we now say very simply about the Day of Judgment? Well, it's inevitable, it will happen, we don't know when, and it will hinge intimately on my relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's just about all we need to know. Just one last thing, by the way, that I find helpful when considering this topic. One last scriptural reference for you. It's something in the letter of St. Peter. And it is that, as St. Peter says, if the world does not end today, we should count the forbearance of our Lord as salvation. Count the forbearance of our Lord as salvation. Or, as another translation puts it, consider God's patience as your opportunity to be saved. If the world does not end today, then God, in his mercy, has given me one more day to learn to love him, to learn to love my neighbour. Thank you, Lord, that we have one more day. Amen. And thank you, all of you, for joining me this week. Do join me again next week for the next episode and the next article of the Creed. May God bless you all. And may he specially bless that journey of discovery we make together into the beauties of the Catholic faith. Amen.